0: Welcome back to the backdrop, untold stories in golf. Hey, Professor. Top of the morning
1: to you. How, how you feeling? I hear you're a little under the weather.
0: Uh I, I bounce back. Okay, I've been under the weather nice sixty two percent of my life, but uh, yeah, a little. As much as I don't want to admit it, Professor, I think this gluten thing is is getting more severe for me. I cheated yesterday, and Uh-oh. it uh, it jacked me up this morning.
1: Ooh, well, did you? Was it at least a good cheat. What did you? What did you partake?
0: Oh, it was the best cheat. Anybody that's been through Akron, Ohio, and hasn't had a galley boy from the uh, Swenson's oh. driving the it's it's like going to 1950s. Every time you pull in, they run out to your car. Uh, we we were crunched on time with the kiddos, and so I I did a little cheat and said. Becca, what do you want? She wanted Swenson's and, you know, usually I would behave, I'd get something a little more sensible, but they don't have much sensible. That's that's delicious. It's one of the best burgers you will have in America. And that is the truth. So yeah, that's, that was, that was my morning. How's your morning? Well, did it
1: hit, I got to ask you, did it hit you harder than Antico in Atlanta or not? Or not?
0: Yeah. And you're, you're bringing back the greatest hits. No, not as bad as you forcing me to eat two pounds of doughy pizza, but, uh, uh, but still, still a factor, a factor.
1: No, we're, we're doing good down here in Georgia. It's just It's summer's upon us. You know, as much as I'm a, a walk every time I, I play golf type of guy, you know, I'll put that hot take on Twitter and, you know, lash out at carts or whatever. We're in the time of season. If I'm golfing between 11 o'clock and 5 o'clock, it's going to be in a cart. So, unfortunately, yeah, that time is here.
0: It's, it's easy to be a keyboard warrior sitting in your AC unit Talking about, you know, carts killing the game until you get out there in July and August. I, I used to, I mean, I still give a lot of the Atlanta New Club members a rough time about their uh, proclivity for for carts, but this time of year, I get it. It's the first time where I totally understand, like, ah, okay, now I get how this all happened. Yeah, I don't like it, it
1: but I get it. I think HDX was 105 the other day, and I swore I drank 96 ounces of water in about a four-hour run and not once, you know, had to go find the restroom or anything. So yeah. That that tells you how much we pump through water during this time of year. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated.
0: Well, um, we got a great guest today. This is one that I know you and I have brought up many, many times as we delve into Uh, the intricacies of golf. I mean, he, he's a deep thinker on all things golf, Garrett Morrison. So I I know you're excited. I'm definitely excited as well.
1: Yeah. Garrett, I met Garrett for the first time and obviously on Twitter, met him through that, but then I was on a California run, just going out for work and decided to play a little bit of golf. And he's like, Hey, you got to check out this little course down, you know, in the Monterey peninsula. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the different courses down there. And uh, he's like still public joint um, Pacific Grove. So played pasta tampa that morning drove down another hour and a half or whatever it is hour 45 and met him for a little evening 18 there um and i tell you what magical and then getting to know garrett during that during that round immediately i'm like okay this is definitely one of the more thoughtful and intellectual people in golf and to this day that's still true there's very few people i would put on the plane with him and uh so it's gonna be fun to get to talk to him and just talk about the state of the game and Kind of, you know, we don't have much of a plan for this this episode. Just let it go where he kind of leads us and takes us because his thoughts are gonna be uh more articulate and more thorough than ours, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, so this would be fun. No, no game plan, just just let the win take us. Uh and, and before we get to your fun fact for the day, I got a question for you. This is yeah, a competitive which, yeah. question. I, we we uh we were playing with a group a couple nights ago, National Members of the New Club here in Ohio. And uh, two of us have USAM qualifiers coming up. I haven't done a, qualifi- a USAM qualifier specifically in a long time, but I'm giving it a shot because it's at my home my home core club. Uh, mentality of qualifiers, 36 holes specifically. G- give us the, you know, you're the performance guy. Put it. Give me a good mindset when you're going in because it's different, right? It's not like, I, th- I think everybody kind of thinks, Oh, I got to play. I got to play great. You know, I got to play so sharp because there's a hundred guys going for four spots. Like, like almost, you know, you got to go low, but it's not really the case. Most qualifiers. What, what's your mindset? I, that, that was my question for you this morning.
1: Yeah. I think one of the key aspects is to not treat it any differently than you normally treat golf, right? The, the, in terms of performance, one of the worst things you can do. And I mean, it's interesting. This is in sports performance, you know, some of the best people in that business, but then all, go all the way to Harvey Penick, and he talked about it in some of his books. Like, let's say whatever you do when you normally go to the course and play around, if all of a sudden in a tournament, you're like, oh, I'm going to do something completely different, you're, you're self sabotaging uh, in that case because you're putting your mind in a different state than it normally is, which is going to create a form of discomfort that you're not going to be able to get out, get out of in that moment without practicing it more. Um. So one is just go in and kind of do what you normally do. Um, the exception being, I mean, your competitive juices are going to be up, you know, all the chemicals that come along with that. So, which you're going to have to give a nice lead into my fact of the day. You're going to focus on your breathing, your pacing, like give strict attention to those to make sure nothing's getting too quick, too tense, too stressful, right? So just really... Calm yourself down, right? Take things slow. Take things don't, in. Don't
0: You can't panic. Uh, and if you yeah. make a bogey, you can't panic in a thirty-six old day, right? Yeah,
1: it's a long day. Just go about it and just say, hey, it's just another day. Just yeah. I'm um, just try to commit the best you can to every shot. Do your best on every shot, and there's nothing else you can control other than those, you know, ten seconds in a shot and out. The, the, the gentleman,
0: one of the gentlemen I was talking to is our our dear friend, Kent Monis. Uh, he's gotten plenty of shout-outs here. I know he's big. He's won pretty much every new club and every TFE, every Shit. fried egg event I, I think he's signed up Yeah,
1: to. he's got a few, that's So sure. Garrett,
0: Garrett knows him well, too. But uh, but yeah, he was just all about giving looks. Like, he doesn't think about results during the day, tries to lose focus on score. He, he yeah. said something like 30, if I can give myself 30 birdie looks inside 20 feet. And I was like, man, if I gave myself 30 birdie looks in a 36-hole day, I, I, I'm i going to be uncomfortable because that's not my game. <laughs>
1: you know? like, that is not your I, game at all. I'm going to have some,
0: some daring up and downs and I got I got to know that, right? But but still, I think that was an interesting way to get himself out of results. Where it's like he really doesn't focus on the putts dropping. He 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 focuses on did I have? Did, am I giving myself the looks? Yeah, yeah. Let's give ourselves a look here. I that 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 was interesting. But anyways, anyone that's that's going for I know uh, new club chapters. We got qualifiers for the club championship. It's a different mindset. But you're right. You got to try to keep yourself in that leveled place, um, comfort comfortable place that you would on any day playing golf.
1: Yep. Um, And that does lead nicely into the fact of the day in the sense of, you know, I mentioned breathing in that and there's tons of breathing techniques you can use uh, to really calm your pulse and work on those things. But um, another awesome thing about breathing, weight loss. So, yeah. So how do you think we lose weight? Like, you know, if you got to lose some weight, not that you, you don't E-eating, need to lose eating pizza and cheeseburgers, <laughs> but let's say if you got to go lose some weight, you know, you, you drank a few too many beers this summer. What's, what's your method, Matt? What, what are you going to focus on and get after?
0: This is going to sound just so uh, infuriating to other people, but I I've never really, I've always had the other problem. I've always had trouble keeping yeah. weight on uh, I guess I'm starting to get skinny fat a little bit with kids maybe. So what, what do I do? I mean, I, I just hit the gym, man. I, it's the yeah. only thing I can think that that would, I don't change my diet very often. I just, I go, uh, do a 10 minutes of cardio and then, and then my golf routine I've had since college.
1: Yeah. So that makes sense, right? We all think like, let's go work out, right? Let's go do some cardio stuff. That's going to burn, burn weight, right? Burn fat, What's really cool is in terms of actually how we lose weight, let's say you lose 10 pounds, about, I want to say, eight and a half pounds, we actually expel through breath. So through the droplets and carbon dioxide, that's where we lose the weight. And only a pound and a half, uh, about 15% is through you know um, bodily fluids like and um, going to the bathroom and sweat, those sorts of things, right? Now, what that doesn't mean is that simply breathing more well, you'll lose more weight. No, what it is, is it's a burning, it's the expulsion of carbon dioxide is how we're losing weight. So that's what's going on in terms of muscle burn and fat burn. We're burning it up and then it's the cycle of basically oxygen going in and carbon dioxide coming out is how we're losing weight. So breathing ends up being incredibly important for losing weight and learning proper breathing techniques so you can really work on your cycle of oxygen and carbon dioxide you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide out. So if you're into any sort of fitness or whatever, don't forget about breathing, like go read some there. of the literature on that. Because if you're not breathing correctly, you're really holding yourself back. Wow. Uh, so go check yeah. that out.
0: That's a good one. I'm a big, big proponent for, for breathing for the golf game. That's where I, I discovered it. And then it led to meditations and things like that. But weight loss, I have not heard that application. That's great. Well, let's uh, thank our sponsor, True Temper, True Temper Sports, manufacturer of True Temper, Project X, Aerotech, Acro, brands of golf shafts. Uh, they design shafts to help golfers succeed at every level. Uh, and their products, my new product, the Dynamic Gold X100s, very stoked. I'm loading a little bit differently, so I'm in the X100s Man, you, now. So
1: you're, you're up in the Xs?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah buddy. Uh, and, uh, and Hazardous, they're trusted by 80% of the pga tour every single week thank you to true temper who will be with us at uh the founders cup
1: this i'm gonna year. i'm gonna hold my thank you to them until i see your wedge game and then i'll if they if, they, if their chefs straighten out your wedge game i'm gonna be i will put them in everything i have
0: <laughs> haven't got the new fitting with the wedges but I'm, I'm eyeing some tour issue i think 300 something something special they got they got they're, they're talking to us about so uh, without further ado, it's, thank you for the education this morning, Kevin. Let's get to the show and, and educate ourselves with Mr. Garrett Morris.
2: Garrett, welcome to The Backdrop. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: It's great to be with you, sir. Uh, Kevin and I, uh, your name's come up on, on so many times. Uh, he told a nice tale of playing golf with you. I'll just tell people this. I'll I'll shorten my my story of, of yours. It was the day or the day after that I first joined Twitter. And I got just manhandled in a discussion of golf Twitter somehow. And I was trying to like, I don't know what I was doing, defending myself. And I got, someone slipped into my DMs. And it was this gentleman named Garrett Morrison, who I didn't know. I didn't know who this was. And you were so kind to just say, hey, man, welcome to golf Twitter. Like, It's not this bad. I promise you keep, keep going. So I just wanted to say thanks off the top. You're very, very kind for doing that.
2: Well, I appreciate it. I I didn't remember it, but I just pulled it up right now. So I'm looking at the conversation and this was back in March, 2020. So, you know, the, the, the dog days of, uh, of the pandemic, well, nearly the dog days of the pandemic there. So I, I, I think I blocked that one out, but I'm glad to hear that I was kind um that's always good to hear uh, as opposed to the opposite
0: uh that's it's it's a rarity and maybe on twitter it's a rarity, but no it's was, it was great but i I have to admit I don't know a ton about you personally so i I kind of want to start it with a very mundane, simple question of garrett wh- where are you from
2: where where are you from in this world <laughs> so originally from Santa Barbara, California, I grew up in Goleta, for those who know the towns around there, sort of a suburb of Santa Barbara, which is kind of funny to say because Santa Barbara is not that big of a town, but essentially Southern California or the central coast of California, uh, as we like to call it. So I grew up there. I learned to play golf there um, and then went various places after that for college and grad school, eventually landed back in Pebble Beach to teach. I was teaching at a boarding school there. And then when I took the job with the fried egg, uh, I worked for the fried egg, which is a golf media company that listeners to this podcast may or may not be familiar with. Um, when I took that job, I moved up to Portland, Oregon, which is where I am now. And why? what, Port- what took you to, yeah, why Portland? Yeah, why Portland? Well, my, my parents live near here, so that was one reason. Another reason was that we couldn't afford real estate in the Monterey area. Uh, We were living in free housing in Pebble Beach. So since I was a teacher at a boarding school, part of the deal was that we lived on campus. We had a little house on campus that was attached to a dormitory. And so that's where we lived. And when I quit that job, we looked around at real estate in the area and just realized that it wasn't going to work. I think to an extent, we would have liked to stay in the area. I really enjoyed coaching the little swim team that I had there at the high school. I could have uh, kept that going even if I wasn't, you know, uh, teaching at the school, but it just didn't, the numbers didn't work out. So we looked around, we considered various cities and landed on Portland, partly because my parents live near here and partly because we really like this area. We think it's terrific. There's lots of fun things to do around here. It's beautiful. The weather's okay, you know, better than some places. So that's where we ended up going.
0: Is it? Is it still weird, Garrett? I, I used to <clears throat> go out to Portland a good bit in like mid-2000s for, for work. And I, I felt that it was very weird in the best, best possible way. Is Portland still weird? Has it lost any of that?
2: I don't know if it's weird where I live. I kind of live in the suburbs where things are pretty conventional. I think that Portland itself still has a good amount of its identity, but there are a couple of different forces that are kind of pushing that away, I suppose. I think the Portland that a lot of people envision is maybe the Portland of the late 90s and early 2000s, which I think was a slightly different kind of place. It's sort of where hipsters went to retire at the age of 35, you know, and it's not really that anymore. Rising prices of housing. And then also, of course, some of the profound problems that Portland has with inequality have started to affect the character of the city, but it's still a wonderful place. If you hear about Portland in the news nationally, often it's negative stuff. I don't really see as much of that because I just go into Portland on you know in in the late morning for brunch or to go visit a bookstore or something, and it's always lovely. So that's my perspective on Portland, but I know the city has some troubles and it's not quite the same as what it was about 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, Portland's always been one of my favorite conference cities. We've been fortunate enough to have a major conference that goes there regularly and it's just it's a blast. Um,
2: it's a cool place to visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you go to Did you go to Powell's bookstore and, and do the oh, whole, yeah. do the oh, whole yeah. thing? Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. yeah, you got to right. Every time I go there, browse the golf section, and see if you come across oh, anything yeah. unique, and yeah, that's a, that's a special special bookstore. Yeah. Um yeah. So, Gary, as long as I've known you, you've always been someone immersed intellectually in the golf, right? Even when you were mm-hmm. back working at the boarding school, which was uh, when I had met you. Where did that start? Have, has it always been that way from ever since you were a child, or did that come along later in life? You know, what really drew you into the game of golf and, and thinking about it in the way that you do?
2: Well, so my understanding is that the two of you have competitive backgrounds in golf, right? Is that, is that how you two sort of started in the game?
1: I'd say that's yeah, fair. Say Family it. getting yeah. us in, but quickly into yeah. middle school golf and high school and, and golf. I'm,
2: that. Right. And I'm sure that your interest goes beyond, I know that your interest goes beyond just the competitive aspect, but you two are really good players. And and so my my assumption is always that you played a little bit competitively when you were younger. and um, And I think a difference between me and a lot of people in the golf media industry is that my entry into the game really wasn't through competition. Mm-hmm. It was more through reading about the game and being fascinated with the game but not so much being fascinated with the competitive or playing element of it. I liked playing golf. I learned golf when I was pretty young, maybe six or seven is when my dad taught me how to play. My dad's a a passionate golfer. And, you know, in terms of playing golf, my relationship with golf is very much defined by my relationship with my dad. And a lot of the preferences and opinions I have about golf are mirrored in in him or I have mirrored from him or whatever the the proper phrase there is. And so, you know, recreationally, that's, that's kind of where I started. But I never really played seriously competitively. I had a few lessons, but I didn't really get into it from that angle. What happened was when I was about 10 years old, 10 or 11, my dad brought home a book. I think he was in Santa Fe or something like that. Went to a bookstore, found this book called The World Atlas of Golf. It had a green cover, and it was all about golf courses. It had great writing in it by Pat Ward-Thomas and Herbert Warren Wind and, and other writers that, that I've sort of since come to know. At, at, at that age, I didn't really understand the writing that well, but I was fascinated enough by it to, to try. The thing that was really great about that book, though, was the visuals basically had maps of great golf courses from around the world. And I became absolutely captivated by those maps. I just stared at them for hours at a time and imagined playing those courses. And that's sort of the root of my interest in golf course architecture. It was through books. It wasn't through playing courses. My dad and I played municipal courses around Santa Barbara. We weren't members of of a club with great architecture or anything like that. And so my first experience with what other people considered great golf course architecture was through books. Around 95, 96 is when Alistair McKenzie's book, The Spirit of St. Andrews was first published. Wasn't actually published during his lifetime in the early thirties. When he completed it, big portions of that book were published in about 1920 as the book golf architecture, but the spirit of St. Andrews, it was sort of an expanded edition of that book, sleeping bear press, this little press in Michigan just decided to publish it for some reason that they had come across a manuscript that had been sort of floating around for a while and it became an unexpected hit. It was a bestseller, believe it or not. And I'm not exactly sure why I think maybe there's an Augusta national connection there and. People knew enough about McKenzie that they were curious about his writings on golf architecture. We got that book. I read that book. I loved it. And from there, it was sort of off to the races. I was was reading a lot about golf without really playing that much. Uh, My competitive sports were more water polo and swimming and baseball, not golf. But I loved thinking about golf. I loved reading about it. And that has always been the case. That's always been my particular lens on the game. And um, and so that's why I'm doing what I am doing now. But the thing that I'm sort of lacking, the thing that I missed was the getting good at playing golf and and, and like really <laughs> learning how to compete. I think that's interesting too. And that's a very worthy way to relate with the game as well. But when I compare myself to, people like you or people like, uh, Andy Johnson who founded the fried egg or Will Knights who works for us or Cameron Hurtis who also works for us. I mean, these are like scratch plus handicapped players with competitive backgrounds. So there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there with me. Um, and so in the past few years, I've been trying to get a little bit better, but it's kind
1: of hard at my age. I mean, I think good golf is, uh, is frustrating. So don't, don't feel like you're missing out on anything on anything. That's there. what
2: makes it compelling,
0: right? Yeah,
1: that's sounds right. Like, I, I mean, that's like why
0: a, we a golf blueprint customers coming your way, Kevin. If if that's the case, but. oh
2: boy.
1: But I mean, that's why <laughs> oh we love the game too. I think it was. I would be hard. the I would
2: be the worst customer for golf blueprint. I, I just would be so disobedient no. and like I, I wouldn't get better. I would just be a frustrating. It wouldn't even be worth the money that I'd that I'd pay you.
1: I think your coworker would, Andy Johnson would be the worst customer because he just wouldn't do anything and he wouldn't try, I think, but no, um, so Garrett, he doesn't really
2: up. need to practice.
1: <laughs> that's, that's
0: good He's point. better if he doesn't is what I think. Yeah, I've, yeah I've, exactly. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad we're driving Andy right now. Um, Sorry, Andy. Garrett, to follow up on the, the course, is it fair to say, well, we'll take us through that interest in golf courses that you, you started to develop at that early age as you're really immersing with Was there an interest in going playing these courses or were you just really immersed in the study of like the grounds of the game? And what did that look like for you as you're, as you were budding into sort of a GCA guy?
2: I mean, I guess both of those, you know, I did want to play them, but I didn't have access to them. I didn't really have any idea how I could end up playing those courses. So I did what I could, you know, when I said earlier that I never played competitive golf, that's a little bit of a lie. Because I did play a couple of seasons of what was called the Santa Barbara Junior Golf Tour. And it was like six or seven events during the summer for kids. And the reason I don't consider it a real competitive experience, though, is that I did not join the tour because I was interested in playing. I joined the tour because one of the courses that they went to was the Valley Club of Montecito which I knew to be an Alistair McKenzie course. And I had no other way of getting on that course except for playing on the Santa Barbara Junior Golf Tour. And so I was definitely interested enough in playing the courses to do that. My dad and I also played Pasatiempo, which was one of the great courses that I knew of that I could play. We paid, I remember the green fee was $100 when we played it in 97, 98, somewhere around there. And that was a major experience for me. I still remember that round in in pretty good detail. So I did want to play the courses, but it was more because I wanted to see them up close and and really experience them and compare them to what my impressions were from reading about them or seeing maps of them or things like that. And so, yeah, I mean... I I think it's maybe a little bit too highfalutin to say that my interest in golf courses was intellectual. I'm not sure it was really that. I just had a kind of fascination with these objects that existed on such a large scale on pieces of land. And I was was really interested in how they came to be and how they looked and functioned. I just really love that. And it sparked my imagination for some reason. And so that's, that's how I initially got into golf course architecture. Now, when I hit high school or around there, I sort of went away from both golf and also being interested in reading about golf. I just, other things arrived in my life and I didn't have time for this interest anymore. And so it really came back About 10 years ago or so, when I moved to Pebble Beach with my family, started working at this boarding school, there were two kinds of teachers at this boarding school. There were the surfers and there were the golfers. And so I ultimately fell in with the golfers, got back into playing a little bit. And since I was surrounded by some pretty cool golf courses, I got back into reading about golf course architecture and writing about golf course architecture. So that's kind of how, you know, it was intermittent, this interest through my life. It wasn't, there wasn't like a a gradual build. This hasn't been a lifelong study, really, even. It's an interest that I had intensely when I was younger and that came back later in my life.
0: Gary, you have such a, a wide reference. I, I love listening on on the on the podcast with the fried egg just because y- y- you pull things from different places a lot. And and I've <laughs> learned in life that comes from people who read a lot of books. And so you've mentioned your love of books and, and where that started. I didn't know that's where your, your, your golf architecture interest really began. Um, my, my question is, how often do you, like Spirit of St. Andrews, Probably my favorite book. And I had, much later in life, a very similar experience to you on The Spirit of St. Andrews. And I've gone back and read that quite a number of times. I I wonder for someone like yourself, who you've brought in that that reference point for so many different authors, so many different architects, how often does someone like you go back and read those books? Do you go back like every 10th new book that you read? Or are you so like, I just need the new stuff? And maybe that's different for, but I, I was, I'm just curious.
2: It's really haphazard. I, I i mean, that's a great question. I wish there were a plan around the reading I did, because it's very possible that there are passages of, from the spirit of St. Andrews that I haven't thought about in 30 years, you know, <laughs> like that's yeah. very possible that I've forgotten some key stuff in that book. And so maybe I should just go back and read the whole thing at some point, but um I have the books around. I have the books behind me, in fact. There's a copy of the Spirit of St. Andrews just like over my shoulder here. And so I, I frequently do pull them off the shelf and go through and find stuff that I remember. Um, I also annotate my books, and so I have I have some writing in the margins and some underlines and some highlighted passages and things like that. And so I'll look at those passages because if at one time I found them significant, you know, maybe it will spark something in my memory and and bring me back to a thought that I had earlier. And so really, that's that's a lot of what I do with books I've read before. I'll go back to them, but it's fairly rare that I'll read them in full. And I think it's probably good practice to reread stuff more often. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend The way I'm doing stuff, you know, from as an English teacher, I I can say that rereading is very important and and can be profound. But uh, I don't do it that often with the golf architecture books I know very well because there's so much else to read. I'm I'm always trying to expand my base of knowledge about golf course architecture, and it feels like the best way to do that is to read something new that I haven't read before. And there's plenty of stuff that I haven't read before, so you know, I'll, I'll that's that's what I'll be spending most of my time doing. But I, I wish I reread more, and I wish I had more time in
1: the day. I feel like it's easy to buy three books for every one book that you read. At least that's a that's a problem that I run into. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: It's so easy to buy. It's especially if you go to bookstores with any frequency. It's just like yeah, I'm definitely going to read this book, and you buy it. And then sits on your shelf for
1: 10 years and you don't read it (laughs) yeah i keep on looking at this shelf ahead above me right now i'm like yeah i haven't read that i haven't read that
2: we we should all we should all avail ourselves of libraries more often (laughs) you know it's that's something we've started doing more uh with my kids going to libraries and getting books and you know it's it they're they're available there And, and since you work for an academic institution Kevin, uh, you're very lucky. I'm, I'm jealous, uh, because one of the uh, greatest times in my life is when I was, uh, you know, in graduate school and I had access to any book that I wanted, no matter how obscure I, if it wasn't in the library, then I could get it through interlibrary loan. And, and that was really fantastic. And, uh, I, I missed that a little bit. I don't have that anymore
1: yeah it's certainly a blessing i'm definitely cursed by the collector mentality that i like books and like those are one of the things i do like to buy to have on the shelf and keep there but definitely fully fully blessed to work with the university that can get anything that i need and want to read even if it's not in my for my academic job i can still uh take advantage of that library and get whatever i want
2: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have you start getting some golf books that i want to track down that Actually, thought I mean, just occurred to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start taking advantage of you grievously.
0: To do it, Garrett, I've been doing it forever. I I use that government. Uh, it's their government job, man. I hotel <laughs> rooms, gonna, everything.
1: They can't see the if I put air quotes around something, so I won't do that for you. Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: the black amex of uh, working in academia. Uh,
1: so, Garrett, like you and I have had several conversations before on Twitter, off Twitter. You know, thinking about the grounds of the game, and I think one of the things that stands out to me, but it's listened this far already, like you love the grounds of the game. Do you consider that to be the core element of golf—the the grounds that we play on?
2: For me, it is. You know, for me, that's that's the basis of everything. I realize that other people come at golf from different perspectives and have have different paths into being fascinated with the game and and therefore find different things primary but so I wouldn't ever want to say that that my way of seeing the game is is the only one because there are enough people who who believe that about the competitive side of it that have annoyed me before that I don't in turn want to be that annoying person to somebody else and and pretend that, of course. that my perspective is is best but yeah, that's that's absolutely what I've always been most interested in, and the thing that I'm thinking about the most when I'm playing, especially if it's a new course, that's really what I'm focused on. I'm I'm not too focused on how I'm playing if it's a new course. And so I think it is what makes golf unique. If you compare it to any other sport, what other sport has this kind of playing field? I mean, to an extent. Baseball has a version of it where you play in different parks, and some of these parks have some character, some more than others. You know, Wrigley Field and Fenway are the old parks; those are the links courses of, of the baseball world. But but really, it's like it's still pretty much the same grid that you're playing on. In golf, the playing fields are so radically different from each other, and a golf course itself is so many different things at the same time it is a grid for playing a game that's one thing that it is it's a strategic construct but it's also a work of landscape design and art and then it's a bunch of other things as well it's it's a, it's a place in the world it's a piece of landscape it's a piece of the earth and so golf courses are are captivating to me because there are so many different things at the same time. And you can't possibly be thinking of all those things at the same time the first time you play it. You'll appreciate one aspect of it, focus on that, maybe temporarily forget about some of the others. You'll be focused on the strategic character, of a course, the first time you play it, maybe. you'll You'll be working out how the lines work, how the angles work, how all of it fits together, how it relates to the game that we play of golf. And you might forget all about the landscape architecture portion of it and how the built features blend into or contrast with the surrounding landscape. You know, and, and so that's why these objects are, are so interesting to me and, and why they are, for me, the primary thing is that you can study them over and over again and find something new every time. And and that's why I love golf courses. But I also understand why somebody might be most interested in equipment. The equipment that we play the game with is really interesting too and, and has its own history and it has science behind it. And the golf swing is is a wonderfully interesting thing as well. And so I I get coming at the game from perspectives other than just golf course architecture, but there are some reasons why I love golf courses so much and why I think that they really merit my entire focus, right? Where, where I'm, I'm not focusing on how I'm playing because the golf course deserves that amount of attention. That makes sense
0: i i I think that's so beautifully said to be Frank Garrett. I, I love the way he just put that. Uh, let me clip that so I can share it. Um, oh. <laughs> but uh, i I think it what it what it what it went through my head is, you know, Kevin and I did start our golf lives in the competitive bucket, and I think uh, many do as you as you mentioned. But I think when you look at the trend line of of lifelong golfers and the journey that we're all on, they're all very different, but we've definitely seen this trend. And your your hard work and Andy's and the whole team at the Fried Egg has a lot to do with this. We are seeing more people gravitate towards the appreciation of golf course architecture, the enjoyment of of those things, the landscape architecture, the strategic elements of it. And I think I think it's a deeper, longer lasting thing. And not to, you know, um, I don't want to put down the competitive side or the equipment side or all these other elements that are quite endless as well. I just think there's some type of deeper connection that is so instinctual in us as human beings. You know, like I, I think about that the old course being a journey all the way out to the estuary and all the way back home, like that's hunting. That's what the hunters did. You know, it's in our DNA and and I think the way that you described it so beautifully is is why we see more more people that maybe it's easier to get disillusioned with c- competition or it's easier to kind of lose your your passion for equipment. It's harder once you get this golf course GCA bug or whatever you want to call it. It's harder to shake. And I'm in, I'm on year. You know, how long has the fried egg been around? 2017, probably around the same time, maybe earlier. 2016.
2: Yeah, I think he, yeah, 2016. So, yeah, so
0: yeah. I'm I'm pushing more than a. a A decade of like getting deeper and deeper into it. Mm. And, and I just think it's more part of us as as humans versus the other stuff, which is still awesome. It's still great. But I I, I think that's why more people end up in that bucket. I I was Mm -hmm. curious your thoughts on it.
2: Andy talks about this a lot because he has a competitive background and his interest in golf, I don't think has always been primarily the golf courses. He was a very good player. And I think focused on that, when he was a kid and and even a young adult. But he talks about the inevitable deterioration of skill over time. And it, maybe it's not inevitable. For a lot of us, it is, because we just can't put the time in that we may have put when we are younger into getting better. And then our bodies start to change, and they're just not as good at doing athletic things. And so that's another factor And that's really frustrating, I think, to some people, to really competitive people, to excellent athletes. You know, excellent athletes are often excellent athletes because they're so competitive and they're so hard on themselves. They're so exacting. And I'm not saying that I was a great athlete when I was younger, but I can relate with this a little bit because when I go swim now, I get so frustrated at myself because I can feel the muscle memory of great swimming, but I can't do it anymore. (laughs) You know, I just can't manage it in the, in the way that I did when I was young. And I think that a lot of competitive golfers have that experience when they get older. And Andy has talked about finding a different way to enjoy a round of golf. Because the reason, I mean, we we start playing golf in the first place is because it's so enjoyable. It's so fun. There's so many benefits beyond just the infusion of pleasure when you play well. And one of the things that you can consistently enjoy, one of the things that you can always rely on getting something out of when you're playing golf is looking at the golf course. Even if it's not one of the great courses, even if there's not much wonderful architecture, there's probably still something interesting about the golf course, whether it's the place or a particular hole that's really good, or just little details here and there that you can become attuned to if you learn about golf course architecture. And you can always, always enjoy that. You don't have to play well. The frustrating thing about basing your pleasure in golf around playing well is that it doesn't always happen. Golf is super inconsistent. You, you, You don't know when you're going to play well and when you're going to play really poorly. And so it's so much more reliable just to say, yeah, I'm going to enjoy it if I play a great round. There's no doubt about that. But one thing I can always do is look at the golf course and find something of interest there. So Andy, Andy has expressed that a lot, probably more concisely than I just did. But but that is that is that is the pitch for getting into architecture. It's something that you can always appreciate.
1: Yeah, and I think there's something you touch on there, too. It, it involves putting aside your own ego, right? That in terms of this competitive aspect and performance, that's, mm-hmm. that's wrapped up in our own ego and our expectations yeah. for ourselves. And that could be completely internal, you know, that ego in a good way of just I want to be – today I want to perform the best of my ability – or it could be the sort of selfishness version of e- egotistical, of like, I just want to be better than everybody else, right? it gets wrapped up in that. And there's something about that, priv- to me, privileging the grounds of the game that requires that we put aside our own ego and realize, like, the grounds of the game are bigger than us. They're going to be, you know, I'm going to die eventually, and the grounds of the game are hopefully still going to be there for other people to enjoy. And that's, that's the permanence of the game. That's the importance of the game rather than the equipment, which only gets better because we want it to make us better but as it gets better it's just a relative better so it's not like our skills are getting better it's just like hiding or masking other aspects to it
2: we're we're chasing the expectations
1: yeah so it's like yeah exactly it's like why not just make the courses easier if that's what we want to do it's yeah (laughs) we could go down that rabbit (laughs) hole um but I think that's one thing, like every time I read you, yeah, you you touch on that aspect that the grounds of the game are what persist, right? They are mm-hmm. what's what's there and make it truly such a variable and unique game. Um,
2: yeah, my, why, my friend uh, Adrian Logue, um, yeah. who's on okay. awesome. a, another oh. podcast, great guy, has an elegant way of putting this. He He talks about looking down versus looking up. Looking down is focusing inwardly and focusing on the ball and your swing and those things that you do to play excellent golf. And looking down as a discipline, it's something that I think is is uh, absolutely worthy to to work on improving yourself and how you're moving physically to play great golf that that's all i'm I'm not dismissing that, but looking up means that you're Looking around you and appreciating what's around you, and separating your attention from yourself a little bit, uh, and I think that that's very worthy and useful as well, and something that we should all remember to do from from time to time in in golf and and in life. And so I, I love that way of putting it, and and that's that's something I, that that I've gotten from Adrian.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: That and now I'm uh, going to ask. That's a bumper sticker right there.
1: <laughs> yeah adrian's a wonderful voice in golf um yeah he's great but counter to adrian i'm going to ask you to look inward now you know uh, w- we've appreciated you moving to the fried egg just because your voice in golf is more apparent now and more ready but what's that been like for you you know has that been what a transition into the golf world where now rather than a boarding school where you know you're working with the students on the different topics that you you want them to explore which probably wasn't exclusively golf and now you're you're in an arena where hey it can be golf all you want. And you can touch on society and other aspects. What, what's that transition been like?
2: Well, it's been incredible. Like, I, I love what I'm doing. I've always dreamed of being able to write and think about stuff and have some freedom as to what I'm writing and thinking about. And that's what I have right now. You know, the, the way that this company works, you don't really have to do anything in particular, you know. Yeah, we do a lot of work, but it's mostly what we want to do and what we think is interesting and what we want to communicate with people about. And so there's a, a lot of freedom there. I, I love the work itself, you know. Um, I think that some people get into to the golf industry because they love playing golf and they want to kind of be adjacent to that. And one of the things that can be disillusioning is realizing that. Working in the golf industry doesn't necessarily mean that you play golf a lot. And so you have to love your job itself. There has to be something about the inherent work that's great. And I love reading. I love writing. I love talking to great people like you. All that stuff is, you know, in and of itself is great. And so that's something that has been really positive. Something that's been challenging is being in public. Mm-hmm. I'm not the least anxious person who's ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> I do care what people think of me. Yeah. <laughs> and I've I've been trying to care less because you have to or else it drives you crazy. But being in public, you know, participating in an in a medium that's as intimate as podcasting, right? You're in people's ears. That's anxiety inducing for me it, it isn't for everybody and so you- i've had to get used to being in public i know i'm not famous or anything but there are definitely people who know me or feel they know me that that i haven't met before a few people you know sometimes i meet them out there at the events that we hold or or whatever and that awareness is emotionally difficult but it's something that i think i've gotten better at and I've started to realize that my resistance to it was a lot about ego and wanting to be perfect and not being willing to just be myself and be vulnerable. To use the 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 hoary term that's like used way too much, but that's really what it is, right? Is is being willing to be vulnerable and foolish and you know, uh, improvisatory not to be perfect all the time and, and realizing that, that people like that, that's what people want from you. But, but it's hard to come to that realization and to accept yourself as you are when you're putting yourself in front of
1: people. Yeah, that's, that's pointed Gary. I, I feel like there's a parallel with competition too, that and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here that well, i say it in terms of I've gone through the same thing, especially in academia, Twitter, all that, the same sort of feelings and what's helped me is separating out. Like for me, it's like, okay, I I do care what people think about me, but my reaction was always what they think about my ideas, right? Like I want people to engage with my ideas in authentic ways. So separating like, oh, what I put out there is still independent of me. And I just want them to engage with my ideas. So if it's engaged negatively or positively, I can take that for what it is. You can separate it from yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily
2: feedback on you. It's feedback on your ideas.
1: Yeah. Maybe how I conveyed them. Did I convey them accurately, inaccurately? And that's also been my limits test for muting or blocking people, right? Like, oh, like, are they <laughs> authentically engaging with your ideas? You know, and I think right. that's, that's where social media has been wonderful because you get millions of people engaging with your ideas. But with that comes people that don't authentically do that.
2: That's, I, I like that a lot. I'm going to try to start to use that having having a litmus test for who you mute and block is actually really great really idea. great that that is a that's a question that i often find myself thinking of but the the real question that you're you're trying to think through there is like who who is really trying to engage with me yeah and you know people can be disagreeing with you often sharply but they're authentically honestly trying to engage with you and that should be honored mm-hmm. and yeah And that's, that is one specific thing that's hard about being in public, you know, because I, I disagree with public figures all the time. And sometimes I let them know about it on Mm -hmm. social media and who am I to say that people can't do that to me. They should be able to do that to me. And I, I shouldn't be dismissive of that, but it's really hard not to try to shut that out because it requires being a little bit humble. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, my
0: co-founder of New Club, Mark Caldwell, always says uh, humans weren't really designed for any level of fame. You know, we have yeah. about eight relationships we should be able to successfully manage. But outside of that, like when you think of, and, and there's far more famous people than uh, three sitting here, no one was really designed for that. And it takes years of of challenges to overcome to like just be comfortable with it. Of any type of awareness of that one dement, that one directional relationship of, you may not know them, but they do know something about you and the way you think and your ideas. That that's really interesting to hear, Garrett.
2: Well, I'm I'm glad it is. I, I'm glad it's not just uh, just navel gazing, um, but uh, I think it's something that a lot of people can relate with, even if they're not in media, even if they aren't public figures. You know, I'm only a public figure in the most marginal way possible. But a lot of us are so public now. Um, the internet has facilitated this where everybody is sort of out there in this realm of of strangers. And dealing with that is, uh, doesn't come naturally. I think Mark is right that we sort of evolved to be able to handle uh, a limited set of face-to-face relationships. And that's definitely not all that we're asked to handle now.
0: And that is my cue for a transition to obviously the thing we wanted to talk to you about is the metaverse and <laughs> arch- architecture inside of the metaverse. I mean, oh, Digital art-
2: Jack and, and all that, the <laughs> yeah. Jack Nicholas uh, metaverse course that you have to join.
0: I missed the breaking news from Club TFE on Jack's new project. So I should us- have
2: written about it. I should have. I should have done something about this.
0: S- seriously, t- like tell
2: us your thoughts. I mean, like, where are we going with this, Garrett? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> it's really easy and fun to make fun of it, and I think that's most of what I want to do with this idea. Uh, because it is stupid uh, just to give people a, a, idea of what we're talking about. Jack Nicholas is going to de- design a course in the meta metaverse. Supposedly this is going to happen. There's some company out there that's going to get him to design a virtual golf course that you can engage with virtually. Um, you can have the goggles and you're in the metaverse. I guess that's how it works. And I suppose the difference between this and a video game is that it's more of an immersive golf like experience where you're actually like walking anywhere you want in the environment and you have those boring moments. I guess the boredom of of golf is going to come back in this metaverse equivalent. And uh, yeah, and so that that's the extent of what I understand about what's happening here yeah, technology is absolutely changing golf in some interesting ways. I'm not sure that I want the first foray into the metaverse for golf course design to be a private club that's just as expensive to join as any other mid-level private club. I think that kind of sucks. You know, it feels like there could be other models that would be a lot healthier and, uh, something that I could actually get behind. Um, yeah, if people like this, that's fine. I, I can't imagine being into playing golf virtually in this way. I, I I mean, check me here. Is this, is this something that is appealing to, cause I, 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 such a huge part of what's great about golf is being outside, you know, and, and being embodied, right? Yeah. Being in the physical realm for a second, because we spend so much time right now projecting virtual selves and mm-hmm. occupying unreal spaces, digital spaces. For me today, part of the appeal of golf is that it is natural and embodied, very physically present as an experience. And... I like that aspect of it. I think that's a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you make of it. Because I don't want to just be a, a tech skeptic here. I, I don't want to be lazy in that way. I realize I'm getting a little bit older and I might <laughs> tend to reject things like this out of hand. But I don't know. What what do you guys think of it? I, I'll go
0: quickly because I really want to hear the professor on it. But I struggle with the same thing with simulators um, because it's, a one-dimensional relationship with with a few of the things we talked about—the competition of it, your swing mechanics, your equipment, blah blah blah, your, your data, your—and that's fine. And I think it can help maybe people get deeper in the game. And, and it, but it's never going to be golf with a capital G for me. And and it's it's number one thing I can point to is being outside. Is that it's a sport that takes place in nature. And my my head is in a different space when I'm out there. I never really get that way. Uh, ripping balls into a simulator. I I've had a lot of fun nights at top golf with my buddies that weren't into golf. And so yeah, the metaverse I'm more giggling at it and not taking it seriously yet just because it, it never is going to get me that deeper connection to to the game. Professor what what are your
1: thoughts Yeah, I mean, uh at the start i just completely agree on it on i agree on the nature aspect too and the phenomenological aspect of being out there and all your senses engage in different ways and somebody say unequivocally yeah, i agree with that now i think we got to check our privilege in the sense of like we have access to golf we get to play golf like we have access to that like in many different ways right that we have access to golf and good golf and good experiences so When I think of technology uh, in terms of that, like getting people that want to play golf or engage with golf an alternative to the physical experience of doing that and getting to do that because of, I mean, I moved to Alaska for a job and like I want to be able to play golf, but I'm in Alaska, so I can't do that. Like, sure, sure. Like I think there's avenues there where this can be a very productive and awesome contribution, which then goes back to the Jack Nicklaus thing, which is just the microcosm of, US golf of like, you no, know, the feature thing is just going to be this private aspect that people can't have access to, right? We, it's in it's, It exists in a world that's only limited by the servers themselves, right? In, essentially, an infinite number of people could be playing golf on this golf course at the same time, to the extent that the servers can handle it. But no, we're going to limit it to 40 people, 60 people, or whatever that pay money. It's like, this is just so american yeah. You know, it, it's, they've gone it's straight comical. For the yeah, it's so yeah. it's so amusing. Like, no, technology yeah. is supposed to liberate and be democratic and whatever. I mean, it's no different than Elon Musk thinking a democratic move was to have charge for Twitter Blue, right? It's like, mm-hmm. no, we have centuries of research and data to show: as soon as you start charging for something, you create inequities, mm-hmm. unforeseen, right? Like. So, and just about well, golf, we might as well just do it in the metaverse too. Let's like, just make it exclusive and like make sure you wear the, you have to wear the, your club tie when you put your VR goggles on? You have to Is put the virtual requirement?
2: virtual slacks on. And yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like, let's just recreate all the aspects of golf that are <laughs> that's just, exclusionary. Let's
1: just, let's just yeah. do it.
2: Yeah. The first part of what you said though made me think like uh, one good application for virtual golf courses could be for disabled people who yeah. can't have the physical experience. Um, I don't know that this is going to significantly lower the financial barriers to golf. Mm. Maybe eventually it will when the cost of engaging with the metaverse comes down, but my understanding is that you have to make a pretty big investment up front to even participate in this particular virtual environment. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, if it if it increases access to something like the experience of golf, I'm not going to judge that, but it is funny to think what a Jack Nicklaus virtual golf course might look like, you know, is it going to have all the usual Jack Nicklaus character? Is everything going to be like left to right?
1: The high, you got that high. Don't show up in the
2: metaverse
0: hitting a, hitting a draw, man. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to you know, help you have
2: me. all the possibilities. So, yeah. I, I hear the there's opportunity I, to do I, anything, and it's it's probably going to be a bunch of greens that kind of receive a fade the best. I've I've already heard rumblings from their digital membership that Andrew
0: Green might be uh, coming in to redo a few. <laughs> He's going to
2: redo it Jack- <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. They're going to just speed up the process by about a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, in the metaverse, you don't have to wait on time. You don't have to. That's you right. You know, this. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you it's don't have to day wait day. on
2: the earth to move. You can just, you know, press a button, <laughs> just, there it goes. Just get coding.
0: Oh,
2: well, uh,
0: Gary, we, we could, uh, gosh, we want to be respectful of your time. I and mean, we have so many. I want Ke- Kevin, there was so much else we wanted to get to. Gary, is there anything else you wanted to ask him before we, we let him part to his, his daily duties at the fried egg?
1: Yeah, I, I do have something. Maybe let's put Andy on the spot. Not on the spot, but just a fried egg to give you this vehicle. You know, this all stemmed from me wanting to hear your voice more in, in golf, Garrett, just because how much, how much I appreciate how much you think about it, the way you think about it. And I always learn when you speak uh, about it and it always be, brings uh, brings thought to mind for myself. You know, we've had a lot of passion projects, stuff like Paper Tiger, a course called Scotland, a course called America, you know, Tom Coyne's work. Like these people that have like, oh, like I'm passionate about golf. Let me create a passion project within golf. Do you have one on your mind that you would pursue? Like if you could choose a passion project that you could just invest yourself into, and again, remove the capitalistic nature of US away from this. This is just like a passion project. If you could just dive into it with whatever resources you needed, where would you go with that?
2: You know, this feels a little bit greedy because I'm already essentially doing my passion project right now, which is to read about golf and see new golf courses and write about them. We're doing a lot of this right now in uh, club TFE, which is our mm-hmm. membership. This is not an ad for that. It's terrible. It's Don't great. go there. Um, but I'm go. having a lot of fun, uh, making the content for it. We're writing these course profiles and that is mm-hmm. impelling me to go out and see new golf courses and get new material to write about. And so I, I love doing that. I think that at some point. I would really like to do a historical project, a bigger historical project. I love historical research. It's part of what I learned to do in my academic career, such as it was. And I kind of do it in fits and starts now where I kind of get an idea and I start reading through the archives that I can find and start piecing together some kind of story about history. Um, I'm really interested in how things changed in golf and golf course design around the turn of the 20th century, so late 1800s, early 1900s, how did things change there? And what are the effects of that change in the present day that we can still see? I think that's a big historical question that I'd like to keep looking into. And maybe eventually it would be a series of articles or a book or a podcast series or something. I don't know exactly what, but for me, doing something a little more historically driven would be what I'd consider a passion project that is different from most of what I'm doing right now, which itself is a passion project. So I'm very lucky that, that my, you know, the job that pays the bills right now is something that I truly love to do. And I have to sort of strain to think of something else that I'd like to do, but yeah, at some, at some point I'd like to Write a book about history. I think that would be great.
0: I, I I'll tell you. I'll, I'll look forward to that, Gear, because one some of my favorite pieces and and um, um, pieces you put together, uh, the RTJ three part series. Oh, thank you on, yeah. on Robert mm-hmm. Trent Jones and just diving into the history there and the the interviews you had. I mean, maybe my least favorite architect, and it was my favorite TFE uh, content piece that I've listened to for probably the last couple of years. So. Oh, thank you so much! Surprises like that are really neat, and I think help us. You know, it's easy to consume what what you you know and what you like, and I'm sure you guys see data that suggests, yeah, this is what people like. But when when you do that slight departure, especially with history, I I think uh, history is our story. You know, as people, Mm -hmm. and I I I think those are great, man. So keep those going.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that that RTJ series was very much a passion project, and. Uh, I'm very grateful that I was allowed to spend so much time on it because that that took a lot of time to put together. It wasn't necessarily the thing that earned us the the most money in the history of the Friday, though it, it did it was a podcast. it did fine. Um, but uh, I was I, I got to focus on that for a while. And I, I love being in the middle of a project like that. It, my one of my favorite places to be is kind of the early middle stages of a research project where I'm still discovering things and still making new connections, um, that's uh, th- that's a kind of limbo that I really like being in. Being at the beginning of, of a project is kind of terrifying, and being at the end of it is really, really miserable. But mm-hmm. there's there's a little bit of time in the middle uh, that I just love, uh, you know, kind of stretching my legs a little bit in. and uh, And so, yeah, maybe part of that is just part of my desire to do something else about history is just to get back to that place where uh, i'm I'm once again getting excited uh, about a research project well
0: garrett I, I really appreciate you taking the time of this this morning man this was uh, uh, a lot of fun it was enlightening get i feel like i know you now so i won't be a stranger on twitter anymore um and uh professor it's always a delight being with you so thanks for being with us and everybody check out um, t- tell folks where they can go I know you said no ad uh, needed but I think the work you guys are doing as independent golf medias are super important so Garrett so we want to support that club TFE is fantastic uh, the fried egg is fantastic uh, if you if you aren't already uh, following those guys and, and subscribing in the newsletter I, I can't recommend it enough
2: thank you Matt I really really appreciate you guys having uh, having me on um yeah if people want to want to start uh, learning more about the friday i think subscribing to the newsletter is is a good place to start i think that's the the initial funnel that a lot of people go down um but thank you so much for this interview is uh very nice to have a conversation about some uh different and more personal subjects and and i really appreciate the effort that you guys put in to think up some questions and uh and appreciate the interest so yeah thanks guys
0: Professor, that was a, a lovely booking with uh, Garrett Morrison. What a, what a gentleman of the game. Just nice having uh, his perspective on the show.
1: Yeah, it's always nice when you talk to someone that just reminds you that you don't think enough about golf because they've thought a lot more about it than you have. Well, I, I, and he was so –
0: I really liked his his part about golf um, you know, what it is, what it is about golf courses and golf course architecture and the grounds of the game that I I thought that you can tell he gave a lot of thought into what truly is his obsession with that, with the game. I don't know obsession. He'd call it that, but I think we all have some level of obsession to dive into these things so much. And, and I truly, I said it then I'll say it again. I thought that was beautiful. It made me kind of pause because I think we all can get in the summer like what it's just this silly game what am I doing spending so much time you know um I've obviously made it a, a, a career choice but I think a lot of people just in general struggle with why is it I want to spend my free time this way or learning about it or diving into the different elements of it and I thought he just so beautifully encapsulated what it is and I'm going to go back and, and listen to that
1: probably again because uh
0: because I thought it was great
1: yeah, I always find that Garrett helps reset myself in terms of, like, our role in the golf universe. Right? We're just we're unimportant. Each of us, as in the collective, in the, as individuals, are completely unimportant in the world of golf and to the world of golf. Uh, and even as a collective, we're unimportant compared to the grounds of the game and the and the the soul of the game and the things that makes that make golf great. So I always find him a useful reset and and also useful, useful barometer. Anytime thinking about the technology debate, competition, anything like that, uh, I like to try to put on my Garrett hat and think like, how would he think about this? And what are the points he would make? Because they're just, they're good ways to get out of your own way uh, often and get out of your own, you know, train of thought. So,
0: yeah, yeah, there was uh, um, the, the timelessness of it crossed my mind too. And, and, you know, I didn't want to take us down the rabbit hole of the distant debate or anything else, but, uh, you know, my 74 at the old course will have zero significance to the future generations of golfers, uh, as will probably, you know, Cam Smith's win there. I, I don't know, but the, the ground itself and the course is the thing that, will stand the test of time hopefully right and and it's but it's the one thing that has the chance to do that and mm-hmm. and that is why why i think it has more more importance than some other elements of our game and definitely our own individual pursuits of the game so yeah it's, it's really cool to hear that and also um i also was really i have a, a deeper appreciation for uh the fried egg and the work that they do after talking to garrett because um i mean i've known andy since he started the thing and and Obviously, been a friend and big supporter of theirs, but to hear that they're still, you know, this many years in, um, able to pursue the things of interest and not just, you know, the capital interest, um, that's hard. I know how hard that is, and especially in in the game of golf. So, uh, just kudos to that team uh, that that keeps putting out cool stuff. You know, it it's it's more important than ever. I think now that we're in this world of. Catchy headlines and live and PGA and uh, you know you just see the the clicks that are for dollars. Well, they're still putting out a, a thoughtful blog. They're still putting out you know pieces that um, they themselves are authentic and interested in. So I, I just thought that was uh, cool to get a little bit of insight to uh, to the work he does.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, any other thoughts for us today, Professor?
1: no i'm looking forward to getting on playing some golf here uh this afternoon so yeah let's wrap it up
0: go get let them fly thanks to our official sponsor of the podcast this month uh and many months leading up to our founders cup they're the official sponsor of this year's uh, 2023 founders cup at big cedar lodge true temper the number one shaft in golf professor go get them play well out there